This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Isamaya French is a name that's become synonymous with a widely celebrated phallic-shaped lipstick. Despite the viral acclaim that's nearly become one of her defining moments to the masses, industry insiders already knew her for a whole host of other accolades that precede the launching of her namesake beauty brand. To her, the seemingly audacious charm we all appreciate is actually something that she thinks little about and rather just is. Ever in pursuit of anything but commonality, her creativity, to put it simply, is fed by the things that she herself finds interesting. Deciding to leave her studies at Central St. Martin's and finding her love for beauty through a face-painting side hustle, Isamaya shares her wisdom on the way to succeed as a business while doing what it is you love. I'm Isamaya French, and you're listening to What is Contemporary Now. Isamaya French, is that the name on your passport? It's my, it is my real birth-given name, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you get asked that all the time. <laughs> Having grown up in Cambridge, I was curious to find out what it is that you credit to have this kind of gift of creative audacity that you seem to bear. Oh, that's very kind of you. Good question. My family were mostly engineers. My dad's an engineer. My brother and sister are mechanic and electronic engineers. My mum is actually a very, very creative person. She actually worked for an English speaking language examination board, but she's a very, very proficient knitter and wrote a book on knitting back in the early 80s. So I think probably any creativity is in part attributed to my mum, but also my dad's sort of problem solving approach to anything and everything. I mean, I used to be under cars fixing engines with him when I was like seven years old. I was very, very close to him growing up and he had that sort of engineering inventive personality. And so a lot of what I was exposed to was thinking creatively and problem solving. People always say fortune favors the bold, right? And you definitely have a sort of edge to you. Is that something that you'd feel like is inherent to you? Was it anything from your time growing up, something that came from your parents or is it just unique to you and the family? I think that I was very independent from a very early age. And I think that probably contributed to the way that I approach my work. When you say nonconformity, I suppose all I think is just doing things that I feel are right or following my instinct and not trying to emulate what other people are doing around me because it's not interesting. Mm -hmm. So I suppose breaking boundaries or pushing new ideas is really just my attempt to create new things and find new ways of doing things and creative problem solving is what it's all about for me. Do you think of yourself as someone who's like subversive or iconoclastic in any way? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I, I suppose if enough people say that you are, <laughs> I have to think about it. But I think that I'm possibly just very desensitized to a lot of the things that I'm putting out. For example, I recently put out a penis-shaped lipstick and I think that in the space that it was in, which is the beauty market or commercial kind of beauty platforms, it's probably quite radical. But if you put that into an art exhibition, no one would think anything of it. In fact, they might think it was quite reductive and had been seen a million times over. So I think 
context is everything. And because I'm sort of an artist working in a commercial beauty space, I think my work's always going to seem a bit more out there. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of people doing far more progressive and interesting and dynamic work than I am, but they're just maybe not in the beauty field. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. But what was the thought process or inspiration behind deciding to make phallic shaped lipstick? I mean, it just seemed like this sort of stating the obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, there really wasn't that much thought that went into it. I think a lot of the time I'm driven by impulse. I'm very receptive to what's going on around me. There's no surprise that in the last few years, there's been a lot more conversation, awareness, discussions around gender, gender politics, around nudity. There are a lot of TV shows on at the moment that show full male nudity, which is actually relatively new on mainstream TV. We had the abortion laws in America. There was Free the Nipple on Instagram. I think there's just a lot going on around sexuality and gender. And I suppose perhaps it was a very indirect influence in wanting to do a penis lipstick. But I could, you know, go on about that for ages. The long and short of it is a penis looks like a lipstick. (laughs) (laughs) And so it made perfect sense to make one. (laughs) So more than anything, it was logical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to admit, it feels refreshing to see that type of product emerge in advertising only because we have been living in a time that's either overly strategic or thought out in kind of a missed target type of analysis way, or perhaps even super clinical because the climate has been bumpy on a number of different subjects. You've touched upon things like gender, but to come out with something like that, that's just simply what it is and free spirit and quite fun. And then also having done as well as it's had. I think I read in the New York Times interview that you had done that people's grandmothers want one. So were you surprised (laughs) to hear how well it did? It was reassuring. I -hmm. think I would have been disappointed if people had taken offense to it or, you know, it did reassure me somewhat that the public do have a sense of humor somewhere inside them. (laughs) But I think to your point about my approach to cosmetics, the beauty industry is so lucrative. It's the only, I think, industry that wasn't affected by the recession and that seems to be exponentially growing compared to some of the things like fashion, whatever. Beauty is massive. And I think when people realized that beauty was so lucrative, a lot of people launch brands and it was kind of an attempt to make quick, fast money. And I think that's why there hasn't been anything particularly inventive in the beauty market, because I think people see it as such a lucrative opportunity. Why would you want to spend loads on packaging when you can do cheap off-shelf, sell it for a massive markup and make a huge profit on it? And I think that's never been my governing force. How much money can I make off something? I've only ever been led by I suppose, creativity or instinct or, you know, trying something new. So I think that's probably why nobody has done something like this. It's mad to me. Like there's so much opportunity to do weird and wacky and wonderful things in the BT world. But I believe it all comes down to, I suppose, a financial incentive at the end of it. Was it your idea initially to break off and start the brand or did someone come to you and say, we want to build a brand with you? No, I've been planning it for a while. You know, I've worked Mm. for a number of brands for the past 10 years and I think Mm. lockdown happened and I thought I may as well put all of this kind of education in developing brands and creative direction to better use. And I also felt somewhat stifled by the brands I was working with creatively as much as anything, because you have to obviously respect the aesthetic and the mindset of whoever you're working with. And I just 
I've got a very different style to most. Yeah, that was actually 100%. That was something I wanted to touch upon. I mean, to your point of the roles you've held, beauty editor of ID, brand ambassador to YSL, creative artist consultant for Tom Ford, creative director at Burberry Beauty and by Rado. It's just this very sort of elaborate list and obviously most recently named the first named beauty curator for Off-White. So I was curious about the differences in those two types of experiences now that you are used to running your own brand. Is it challenging to work under the banner of another brand? Because I'm assuming the control is going to be a little bit different. I think it's about having different experiences within the different sort of processes that you're working within. I have a lot of creative freedom for my brand and sometimes that's actually stifling. You know, who am I? What do I want to say? Whereas working with Off-White, for example, it's been a real pleasure because there are other creatives working at the brand. They have a sort of clear direction of what they want to say. It's an elevated luxury brand that came from a predominantly sort of streetwear background. Obviously, you have Virgil's legacy. So sometimes it's very helpful working for brands because the parameters are there. And then other times when you really want to say more or do more, you can't. So I think for me, it's really nice being able to do both because I have the freedom of my own, but then equally... I'm able to work quite effectively with another team, with another beauty lens. Of course. We've jumped Mm. ahead of ourselves because you also have a very interesting path into this industry, having turned a side hustle into something much more full-time, as it were, with, (laughs) what was it, product design you were studying at St. Martin's? Yeah, product industrial design, yeah. And it was face painting that was the kind of side hustle (laughs) that ended up taking over, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I needed a job. I quit university. I dropped out of my second year because I just felt like, St. Martin's. It just didn't feel conceptual enough for me. Mm -hmm. So I took up face painting instead of getting a bar job. And I did a couple of other things at the same time. And then I I just got quite good at it. It was only really much later when I was asked by a theatre company that I was part of, because I have a background in dance and theatre. They asked me to come on board to do some body painting for a shoot for ID magazine. And I turned up with, you know, like a rucksack full of face paints and some nasty brushes and bits of clay and whatever. And I did my thing. And then that's when I, it was the first time I'd worked in a somewhat professional environment with regards to face painting. And I just thought, oh, why is this going to be a job? It's a full-time job. So it wasn't like beauty was a part of your kind of childhood dreams growing up? No, not at all. I really didn't have a particularly girly upbringing. I did a lot of sport. That was kind of my, my life. I was a competitive highball diver. I did gymnastics and a lot of dancing. I didn't even really think about, especially makeup, it was just not really my world. And how did your parents respond to that significant pivot when you decided to drop out of St. Martin's? <laughs> my mum does tell me now she called up quite a number of her friends in a panic. <laughs> I think they were anxious. Of course. Because I think maybe any parent would be if your child just drops out of education and doesn't have a plan. But I was so intent on just doing my own thing. And I was already working at university. And if anything, university just felt like it was holding me back. Mm -hmm. So I had to get out of there. And product design, is that something that's informed a lot of the decisions with things like packaging at the brand today? It definitely has. And it's funny because I left St. Martin's thinking, God, I hate this world. I hate commercial design. I think that my problem with the product design course that I was on was that Ultimately, you're designing for the masses, which essentially means creatively reducing 
as many elements as you can until everybody likes the thing. Think about Ikea. The idea is almost kind of not to stand out and have a point of view, but to be so appealing that everybody wants to buy it. And that just wasn't for me. But it did teach me about injection molding and it did teach me about PCR, plastics. I spent a lot of time soldering metal in the workshops and in the carpentry workshops. So I guess on a very practical level, it was fantastic. Well, even your work with prosthetics, I don't really find anything all that entirely traditional about the way you've approached your career. And I think that's such a significant part of probably what makes your offering so unique in terms of the brands that you work with and even what you've done with your own company. So where did that kind of added element come into play along the path to discovering your love for beauty? Do you mean prosthetics in and of itself? Yeah, just what you've done for certain shows and just different things that you've played on. I'm interested in the new. I'm excited by new. And if I've seen it done before, it's trendy. It doesn't do it for me. I'm not interested in it. It's been done. And I think with prosthetics, it's a funny one because a few years ago, nobody was really using prosthetics. And I was using it partly for that reason, because it was exciting and it felt innovative in the kind of commercial beauty space. And now I see everyone and their assistant is doing prosthetics. Everyone knows how to apply a set of horns <laughs> or, um, I don't know, fish scales or whatever. And so I sort of started moving away from it. But with shows, it's a whole different environment. But the great thing about shows is that you have to be very responsive to the designer and to their world and what they're trying to say. And I'll do that in any means possible, whether it's chucking Lego on a model's face or it's attaching LEDs to their eyebrows or whatever. It's interesting, almost trying to escape commonality, I suppose. That is what it is, actually. It is trying to escape commonality because I just don't feel like there's any progression for me personally in that sort of shared space. Even just looking at the themes of the three makeup collections that you've released to date, like BDSM, I think Cowgirls, obviously we've talked about phalluses. How would you describe the obvious common thread or perhaps whatever interest it is that's informing that from a creative perspective? Well, I think I'm passionate about world building, creating these sort of very high concept stylized worlds and sometimes narratives that go with the world. I don't know what the red thread is between a dick lipstick and a, and a cowgirl vintage palette, but I feel like <laughs> if you look at the whole process and the approach and the campaign imagery, everything should feel very coherent to its sort of capsule, I suppose. And we've talked about all of the positive reception and obviously even people's grandmothers wanting the product. And I think for those who perhaps weren't familiar with you prior, it definitely put you on the radar of a much more public audience. Has there been any type of negative backlash to something as fun as that lipstick? Do you know what? I don't really think there has. Not that I've witnessed. I mean, I somewhat stay off social media because I just think it can be a little bit unhealthy to obsess over what other people think about what you do. (laughs) I haven't. And actually, it's been the best-selling thing out of anything I've done. Maybe surprisingly, maybe not. I mean, sex sells apparently. (laughs) And it really has done. And I think, again, people like it because there's a sense of humor about it. And it's so fundamental and so obvious as well. And we were very careful when we designed it. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't gratuitous and it felt very stylish, possibly a little bit similar to something that Jeff Koons might create or, I don't know, a Paul McCarthy or something. It felt cartoonesque. And I think that's why it's done so well, because it's relatable, but it's not vulgar. Absolutely. And again, it just feels quite fun to see in the market. 
And having the points of view that you're sharing, what is it that you consider when looking at different designers or brand partners that you want to work with? Obviously, you worked with the late Vivian Westwood and a number of other, I wouldn't say outliers, but people who definitely have their own voice in the choir. What is it that kind of informs your decision as far as clients you want to work with? Well, a couple of my favorite clients are Junior Watanabe from the Comme des Garçons group and, uh, mm-hmm. and Tom Brown as well. And I think all three of those designers, Vivian, Tom Brown, Junior Watanabe, they have such a strong sense of self mm-hmm. and very identifiable. And they're also willing to be very creative and go there and push boundaries, but to try and find new territory within that creative space, yet somehow managing to maintain a very concise brand aesthetic and philosophy. And I find that so interesting. It's great working with designers like that because I know I can be really creative, but those wanted and needed boundaries or creative restrictions are there. And that's actually very, very helpful. It makes my life much easier. It's very mm-hmm. hard someone saying, just do whatever you want. But if someone <laughs> says, okay, so we're in 2058, industrial revolution in 2058, and she's a punk or whatever, it's really, really helpful to have creative guidelines. So that's why I like working with those brands. It makes perfect sense. And that's actually a reoccurring kind of idea that's come up in a number of different episodes, just in terms of the benefits of having those parameters. Yeah. And knowing that, to your point, beauty specifically is a very competitive, albeit growing sector of the business and your ability to remain true to what interests you and not necessarily so driven by what revenue might or might not look like. What kind of advice do you have for people that are coming up into this very populated space today who want to have the ability to be as true to themselves as you've been while also succeeding? (laughs) (laughs) Are you talking about makeup artists or brand owners or... Actually, that's a fun kind of divergent pivot. I was talking about makeup artists, but I think hearing your perspective on both could be nice. It is a heavily saturated market. Mm -hmm. And I think I was very fortunate to have come up at a time where it wasn't quite as saturated. Instagram wasn't what it was today. And Mm -hmm. there was still space for people to exclusively show their work. And I think that's been the hardest thing with something like Instagram is you realize that maybe you're not that special, you know, and perhaps 20,000 other people could do what you do in ID magazine. They just haven't had the opportunity. But now they do because they have Instagram and, you know, world is your oyster and you can totally curate it in any way you want. And I think I had to work very hard back in the day 10 years ago because something like Instagram didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to get your work out there was to like push, work your ass off, network, do shoots. I worked for free for about four years, having to share bedrooms with people. And it's just a very, very different climate to get the visibility that I think is much easier for people to get today. However, saying that, because there's so much visibility, it somewhat diminishes opportunities and creative talents because there's just so much of it. So I can't give any advice. If you're passionate about something and you want to do it, do it. But I'd say that to anybody. You only live once and ideally 80% of your life working, you're doing something you enjoy. Just make sure you really love what you're doing, I suppose. I always say that and I wholeheartedly agree. And it's even a debate that we had on a set yesterday about whether or not capitalism and meritocracy were good things for everyone. 
But at the same time, people do run into those moments where, similar to your mother's reaction to your decision to drop out of school, most are trained to kind of assume the path of safety or status quo or whatever. And you're a perfect example of the fact that sometimes risk leads to much greater returns. And it's just a matter of perspective, I suppose. But to your point, passion sounds like the leading ingredient. I have very supportive parents and they're wonderful and they've always supported me in whatever I've done. But I don't know that I had a kind of security. I wasn't able to go back home and have a safe haven where I could just rest and recoup and it was always going to be there. I didn't have that. Once I left home, that was it. I probably didn't really return home for quite a number of years. So I think plunged into the deep end from very young age of having to be self-sustainable and owning what you do and taking risks was something that became very familiar to me very early on. And I've been able to do that throughout my life because I had to create my own safe space and I had to earn my own money and I had to build my own home and house, if you like. And so I think as hard as that was, and it was very hard, it at least gave me a very solid footing as to who I am now, knowing that I can take risks. I'll pick myself up if I fall over. No one else will. Maybe that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, there is an odd benefit to not having anything to fall back on. Yeah. Yeah. And we've touched upon what that looks like for budding makeup artists and such. But to your point of how the climate's different today than it was when you first arrived in this business, what is your thought process around opening a beauty brand today versus what it would have been like if you had done it earlier? It's important to have a voice. And if you want longevity, you have to just persist and God, keep making those assets, even if they kill you because TikTok <laughs> and Instagram are the currency these days. So Absolutely. And speaking of new, dare we ask what is next in the new world of Isamine? Yeah, sure. Um, I can't say. but Of course, um, <laughs> naturally. It's the dare. <laughs> um, not more makeup and collaborations. I am working on a documentary actually at the moment, which is about global beauty aesthetics and beauty ideals, who shapes them, what informs them around the globe. And that's really, really exciting. And yeah, the brand will continue to live on and we have collections coming out this year and next year. And I'd love to tell you all about it. I'm just not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And you just touched upon a documentary. How did that come about? That's a little bit of a segue. Something I've been thinking about a long time. When I launched Days Beauty back in 2018, mm -hmm. it was a really pivotal moment for beauty when this kind of new relationship with technology began to drive the way we ideate beauty, our own identity, and culture, a new way of looking at ourselves. And also because the internet made sure that we could all see what everybody was doing. So there's this interesting sort of homogenization of a beauty standard, thanks to, you know, maybe the Kardashians at the time. But it suddenly made me very aware that there are so many different approaches to beauty and aesthetics globally. And I'm curious to know, not only because it will inform what I do with my brand, but how they're shaped politically, culturally, socioeconomically. Is it about wealth? Is it about fertility? What shapes beauty. There are some commonalities and give away wealth and fertility are two of them. But culturally, it's really interesting because we're such a global community now. Ideas that might have once only lived in Southeast Asia are now becoming 
mainstream and informing the way that we do plastic surgery on ourselves in the West. And it's fascinating and it's sort of continually changing. And I just wanted to try and grasp a moment in this very strange time of flux, what the hell is going on in beauty. (laughs) That sounds incredible and very interesting. When will it be out? So it won't be out for a while. There's a lot to film. Of course. So we're hoping perhaps next year, perhaps the year after, but it's been very exciting researching and getting to know people that are involved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, it sounds very enriching. And you mentioned collaborations. Will that be the first for the brand or am I missing one? No, no, it will be. Yeah, we have some really fun collaborations coming up. I wish I could just talk to you all about it, but I'm afraid I'll have to save some of it. Yeah. Yeah, no worries at all. I have been curious about the growing popularity behind collaborations. What was it that led to that decision for your brand? I've always collaborated. Mm -hmm. My sort of life's work really in fashion is collaborating designers, stylists, hair, talent. So for me, collaboration is a very easy and fun process. And it just means that you've got more approaches and opinions to the work. So always good. And our last and final, of course, famous question. What do you think is contemporary now? Ooh, what is contemporary now? (laughs) (laughs) What do other people answer? (laughs) You know, it's funny. It has been surprisingly varied while having kind of commonalities across it. I think Obviously, there's a great deal of people who think being authentic to yourself or to your point, pursuing your passion, recognizing that we're no longer necessarily in an era of life where one size fits all in any meaning of that phrase. And that the coexistence of a number of different things is very contemporary now. And perhaps the old rule book no longer applies. But that's not to say that has to be your answer. I would totally agree with that. I think it's high time that people acknowledge and accept that it's okay to have a different opinion or a preference or an approach and to leave people alone unless they're out there killing people just leave people alone and let them get on with their lives <laughs> so yeah i agree with everything you just said beautiful thank you again for taking the time today <laughs> i appreciate it and we look forward to seeing all these new collaborations that are on their way out yeah i have a new collection out in june and then another in september so i look forward to sharing those with you beautiful well thank you again Asamaya. thank you so much lovely to speak to you Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 